HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And guess who I have back with me? I have Chris Jones, a former research engineer at the University of Iowa, who you may remember from, I think he was on in June. And he is also the author, and most importantly, the author of The Swine Republic, uh, which came out from Ice Cube Press, also published, I think, back in June. Or was it May, Chris? You tell me. Um, I think it was May 20th. Aha, uh-huh. yeah, right. One doesn't forget the publication date of one's yeah, book, I suppose, I does not. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you, uh, that book has really, it got legs, as they say in the publicity trade. Um, and you have been a busy bee since we spoke uh, last in June. Um, so remind people of how it was that you have acquired this uh, persona of the conscience of the waters of Iowa. Well, I'm not even sure I know, but I think I uh, it it probably uh, ties back to just my willingness to speak honestly about these things. And you know, as far as a book goes, I think all all successful books um, sort of um, talk about things that people are already uh, thinking about. And so, you know, when the when you read a book and it says something that you know. Um, that you've thought always to be true, then it sort of resonates. And so I think um, the legs, as you put it, um, have to do with those two things. That's probably true. I mean, I did book publicity for about at least a decade. And um, it is definitely the case that it's it's sort of the zeitgeist. You know what I mean? When a book succeeds largely, it's it's not just because the publicist is fantastic like me, um, but because the book somehow yeah. connects to the zeitgeist of the time. And honestly, in Iowa, if you are not aware of the compromised uh, quality of the water in Iowa, then you are not uh, fully human, apparently, because you're not drinking or bathing or smelling it, for that matter. Um, so c- can you tell us a 
little bit about um, some of the panels and the appearances you've been making and and what kind of reception, I mean, to go along with that zeitgeist idea, um, what kind of reception have you gotten from people at your um, at your events? Well, to be honest, I'm sort of astonished at how uh, many people are interested in the events. Um, and I th- you know, I, I've been over to Illinois twice. Um, I was wow. in Champaign, Illinois, and I was just shocked at how many people uh, had an interest over there in this. Um, I've been to Missouri twice. Mm-hmm. I've been to, you know, places all over Iowa, some of them multiple times. And it seems like almost always, not always, but almost always, um, the room is pretty packed. And I'm not sure that they're there to hear me specifically, but they just want to hear uh, about water quality here in Iowa and the rest of the Corn Belt because, mm-hmm. you know, the sense is there's something wrong and <laughs> our institutions are not dealing with it in a real effective manner. Right, right. You know, I, I did listen to the panel uh, that you did with Art Cullen. I think it was, um, mm-hmm. uh, what is her name, Rosenberg? Who put that together? Diane Rosenberg. Diane Rosenberg. Yeah, yeah. where yeah. that was in Iowa. That's Jefferson County, um, Iowa, and so um, and they've done a very effective job down there at being able to keep CAFOs out of that county. And so, mm. amazing. Um, the neighboring county, Washington County, has the most hogs of any county in Iowa, and Jefferson County, which borders it to the south, has almost none. And so. Wow. JFAN, the group down there, has been um, really um, worked, really worked really hard to um, try to keep CAFOs out of Jefferson County, and they've succeeded. And they're one of two counties in Iowa that's been able to do that. The other one is Dickinson County in Northwest Iowa. And mm-hmm. so, yes, that panel was Art Cullen and some others. That's right. Yes, Art Cullen, you, Sonia Ayers, who has been a guest on this show, she's from Minnesota. Um, and she recounts an incredible story. I mean, incredible to the extent that I found it incredible, um, but <clears throat> sadly. But um, I'm sure she's been very effective there as well. She's an attorney. And who else was on that panel? Somebody else who was really good, really interesting. Chris Peterson, who's... Oh, that's right. Chris Peterson, he's a farmer in northern Iowa and then raises yeah. hogs in, in a more traditional mm-hmm. uh, production system. So, Well, the whole Nyman Ranch... Consortium. I mean, they're not all there, but, you know, 800 hog farms or so is the Diamond Ranch Collective. And they're mostly based in Iowa, too. And they do a very traditional form of uh, hog raised production. So but anyway, let's let's go on and talk a little bit more about how. <clears throat> Would you, so your 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 contention is is that Iowans are beginning. <laughs> I love this line. I'm sorry, it made me think of you. But waking up and smelling the nitrates. I mean, you know, yeah. You think that, but do you think that's going to have an impact on the political, um, sort of the politics that go into, uh, you know, CAFO production, CAFO construction, I should say, that seems to be largely, aside from the counties that you just referenced, um, to be largely uh, completely untrammeled by any regulation? Well, I think that, you know, the question is, where does it end or where does it stop and will it ever uh, change? And, you know, I can't say that I have the answers. I think the evidence is there um, 
that would tell us that we need to question the way we're doing things. And, you know, we've known for quite some time that there are health consequences to the production systems that we have here. We've had the contagious diseases occur amongst the animals, uh, both with chickens and with hogs here in the last five years or so. And so, and we've known for a long time that, you know, the water here in Iowa is, you know, less than what we would uh, like it to be, to put it mildly. And so, you know, the water quality and the environmental consequences are just a symptom that, you know, maybe the production system that we have here is not very sound. Mm-hmm. Can you, you know, go a little deeper into these water quality issues, just because we are going to talk about that, that whole sort of batch and build saturated field buffer, um, which you uh, described so ably in your Substack post recently. But um, I, I just want to give listeners, if they're not fully conversant, which they should be by now. I've been covering Iowa water problems for like 10 years. But anyway, um, <clears throat> you know, what? what is the, the biggest problem? Is it the manure spreading from the CAFOs? Is it the nitrates that are running off from fertilizers? Um, a combination? Like why, why is it so hard to manage um, the water supply in Iowa? What is happening there? Like, let's talk a little bit about those monitoring stations that you set up, which are now being dismantled. Let's get into sort of that part of it. Well, the main problem we have is the scale of production. And so we have 70% of our land in Iowa in crops, and that's an enormous number for an area the size of Iowa uh, to have um, that much land in crops. Um, and then we have, you know, 25 million hogs, 4 million beef cattle, um, <laughs> 5 million turkeys. We have 80 million chickens. We're the top egg state. Right. And so, you know, this intensity of livestock production on top of, you know, almost all of our land being in, in some form of agricultural production uh, is something that we don't want to talk about very much, and it's the scale of production. And so even if every farmer was doing things perfectly, we would still have some you know, pretty serious pollution problems. Interesting. The main, the main water quality issues we have are with nutrients and nutrient pollution. That's nitrogen and phosphorus. Um, nitrogen pollution is our worst problem for sure. And that manifests itself as nitrate in our water. Uh, Yes, some of that is from commercial fertilizer. A lot of it is from manure. Uh, The issues that we have with manure is that we see in watersheds with a high density of livestock production that farmers uh, apply more nutrient in those watersheds than in watersheds where we don't have a high density of livestock. And so we see the availability of manure really does not affect commercial ser- commercial fertilizer sales all that much um, huh. in Iowa. And so we're not managing, we're not even really attempting to manage, um, you know, these nutrients in a real environmentally sound way. And as a result, you know, we have this pollution. We have 7,000 private wells that are contaminated with nitrate. We have about 25% of the state's population that's drinking municipal drinking water that's been treated for nitrate. We have our lakes that are really unusable from about July 4th till the end of September because of the algae blooms that connect up 
to the nutrients. And then we have the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico that mm -hmm. we're the primary contributor to that. And so we are polluting at the continental scale is what I say. Um, Gee whiz. That's impressive. And then, and yeah. you are not the only ones. I mean, if you, as you referenced earlier, the, the corn belt at large. Um, so you were received with uh, enthusiasm in Illinois, which grows a lot of corn. Uh, I know Minnesota is a big ag heavy state. Um, Wisconsin has a lot of dairy, has a lot of mm -hmm. eggs. I mean, they, they must all be experiencing more or less of the same issues, just not to the extent that Iowa is. And I guess I should ask well, if you feel like that's percolating through those populations as well. So in Illinois, um, you know, we see, we've, we published a paper when I was working on phosphorus and we see phosphorus levels in Illinois probably two to three times higher than they are in Iowa. Nitrogen, stream nitrogen is similar, maybe slightly lower in Illinois. And so the difference between Iowa and Illinois is the livestock. And so Illinois does mm -hmm. not have all the livestock that we have. Now we see in some areas where there are, you know, where there is intense livestock production, um, uh, the Western Lake Erie Basin, for example, um, Western Ohio and Eastern Indiana, there is um, intense livestock production. And so we see many of these same problems in Lake Erie with the big uh, algae blooms. Uh, Minnesota right. does have a lot of hogs. And so Southern Minnesota has issues. And Wisconsin, as you say, um, has a big dairy industry and a big beef industry too. And so we see contaminated groundwater in Wisconsin, in Southwest Wisconsin, and then what we call the Fox River Valley, which flows um, north to Green Bay. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of territory. <clears throat> and then, you know, yeah. we're not even beginning to talk about the Southern states, North Carolina being the one that springs to mind immediately because they're, I think, second in hog production, um, maybe. Uh, or third. So I think Minnesota is second now. Um, right. And so North Carolina was uh, number one. And then in the mm -hmm. early 2000s, their state government um, decided there needed to be decided there needed to be a more moratorium on CAFOs. And that's right. when the industry really started moving to Iowa um, ah. in a real aggressive way. And so our laws uh, at that time were and still are, are very favorable. Um, for expansion of the hog industry. We have weak environmental um, enforcement of the laws that we do have. And so it was this classic race to the bottom a phenomenon. And so a lot of the right. hog um, expansion in the hog industry um, came from North Carolina to Iowa at that time. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And um, just to clarify one thing, when you talk about lax environment, I know that there is such a thing as uh, the manure management plan, which every CAFO has to um, produce before they're allowed to open their doors, if I'm not mistaken. Why are those so weak? Like, what, what is wrong with that? So when a CAFO applies for a construction permit, they've got to have a manure management plan, which right. outlines the fields that are going to receive manure and then the rate of nutrient that will be applied. And our laws were written back in the early 2000s. And for example, the, the formula for nitrogen um, goes by what we call the old yield goal um, formula which was developed by a guy at the University of Illinois, George Sanford. 
And what it said was uh, you take the bushels of corn that you want to produce, and let's say that's 200. You think you can get 200. Mm-hmm. You multiply that by 1.2, that's 240, and that's the pounds of nitrogen that you should put down. And so we know, we've known for a long time, probably 30 years, that that yield goal um, scheme is not protective of water quality, and it's not even really relevant from an agronomic standpoint. But that's Mm. what our manure management plan uh, laws use, and so in effect, state law endorses an over-application of manure nutrients. Right. On the phosphorus end, we go by the phosphorus, phosphorus index, which is really too complicated to get into in any detail here. But right. at this point, we know that the phosphorus index is also is not protective of water quality. And so we really need to revisit how we're, well, what our guidance is in terms of manure application. Right. And, and and you mentioned that it hasn't, the application of manure has not had an impact on the sales of fertilizer. So in other words, these guys are still, I mean, are they all applying both commercial fertilizer and then spreading manure on top of that? Or is it, you know, not quite enough to go around? Yeah, right? we have 99 counties in Iowa and Sioux County is very likely our biggest livestock state. And we know Sioux County is 11th in fertilizer sales out of 99 counties. And so I think what we see here is that for the farmer, the manure is free. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, like I say, if beer was free, I'd drink more of it. And (laughs) the manure is, uh, the manure is uh, free. And so they're just inclined to uh, use more, I think, we also have uh, some issues with timing. Um, you know, their pit gets full in September uh, at the right. hog confinement. They got to get rid of that stuff. And every farmer knows if you apply uh, manure, hog manure in September when it's still warm out, that that nitrogen will not be there in the spring. And as a result, um, we get commercial application following manure um. application. Um, we see that um, these uh, toolbars, they call them, that they use to apply the uh, liquid manure don't apply uh, real uniformly. And so farmers will see uh, areas of corn in their field that are a light green, which means it's a little nitrogen deficient. Uh-huh. They hate that. And so they'll come back with a commercial to try to you know, correct that situation. Mm-hmm. And so... There's a lot of reasons why farmers uh, use a commercial after manure. Uh, none of them are very good reasons, though. Yeah, right. In other, well, I, I, your analogy of the beer is free, I drink more of it, is perfect. Because mm-hmm. if a little bit is good, then more is going to be better, right? I mean, that's just human nature to think that way. Um, we have to take a short break now. We'll be right back with Chris Jones to talk more about, um, you know, water quality in Iowa and ultimately the rest of our farming states. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheese-making traditions with them. 
These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. So, Chris, let's talk now about your recent post. You have a Substack. Uh, I'll give you an opportunity to highlight that again at the end of the show. But people should know you can find um, Chris's work, uh, current work, on his Substack, which I think is just Chris Jones, right? ChrisJones.com or something? How, how do you? Uh, it's it's RiverRaccoon.substack.com. Oh, and right. this, the title of it is called The Swine Republic, same as the book. And right. so, yeah, I'm trying to post on there every couple of weeks. So some yeah. of them aren't terrible. <laughs> well, this was a long and very complex one. And as you say in the piece, um, it was one you were sort of reluctant to tackle because it is so complex and it's kind of hard for people to, I mean, you have to be a chemist to really understand this. And of course you are. Um, I am not, <laughs> but I did kind of get the basic idea here. So you talked about a policy which is called um, informally, I guess, batch and build, which has to do with edge of field which is a term in, the term that people use to describe, you know, the edge of their fields. And they're, and in that edge of field, they build something called a saturated field buffer. Can you explain sort of what this is supposed to do? I know it has to do with tile drainage, and that, of course, is something that makes my eyes glaze over, but I do know what a tile drain is. But other people don't need to know quite as much as I do, but it's still good that you, um, you know, tell people what, sort of that is supposed to do and what, in fact, it does do. So if the listeners should know that Iowa is wet uh, generally, although we've had three years of dry weather here, but uh, generally the amount of rain we get during the growing season exceeds the amount of water that the crops need. And so the soils are what we call hydric, which means they retain water and Thus, farmers have installed these drain tiles, and we've lowered the water table four feet over about two-thirds of Iowa. And so the wow. outlet of these drain tiles, you know, it's a pipe that discharges into a, a creek or a ditch. And mm -hmm. there's um, edge-of-field practices that can intercept that water and then quench the nitrate in the water before it gets to the stream. And so one of those practices is what we call a saturated buffer. Okay. The tile um, discharges into a header that runs uh, perpendicular to the stream, perpendicular to the tile, but parallel to an adjacent stream. The water percolates out of this perforated pipe underground and then the nutrients are captured by the roots uh, of the plants that are in the riparian area along the stream. And so these things do work. They do uh, reduce nitrogen, but um, they generally are designed not to capture um, all of the tile flow. And in fact, some of them are being designed such that they only capture a tiny portion of the tile flow so that's the main thrust of the uh, Substack post is that we're spending a lot of money on these things, thousands of dollars, 
to right. capture, you know, a few pounds of nitrogen per year that has a value, you know, if you were to buy it of maybe $5. And, oh, wow. And so I really uh, object to this as, you know, what we call a landscape scale solution. We know there's never going to be enough money to solve this problem uh, with this approach, but it does make for good PR. And so when they go out and they build these uh, saturated buffers, the politicians like to go out and stand there and say, <laughs> yeah, this is we're making progress. Right. The batch and build term refers to the idea that they would um, install a bunch of these in a small geographical area at the same time, which would reduce costs for the earth movers and the other contractors, you know, which... Of course, there's some efficiencies there, but the underlying uh, idea of this being a solution is is flawed from the beginning, whether or not uh, they're putting in 10 of them or they're putting in one of them. Well, I mean, as you pointed out in the in the piece, in the in the what do you call them? Substack. What, what do you call that? A Substack blog? A, the, post, a post. Post. A post. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and also, I want people to know that it, even though it says tile, it's actually a pipe. That is something that for, for some reason my brain constantly stumbles over. But it's a, t a drainage tile is a, a drainage pipe, right? So that's right. And when Europeans first got here, the tiles were made of clay. And uh -huh. and so they put them down in sections, you know, maybe two feet long, six feet in diameter. And then there were gaps left in between the sections. And so water could seep into the pipe and then, you know, drain out to the adjacent creek. And because they were made of clay, I think that's where the term tile originated. Uh -huh. Thank now, you. now it's made of this black corrugated uh, pipe that um, you see on these huge spools. Um, you see it at all over the Corn Belt, these big spools of it sitting out on fields. I mean, you can buy it at home improvement stores. People will use um, this tile to, you know, dry up areas around their foundation. Uh -huh. And that so it's very sense. common, but, you know, we put it, we have 2 million miles of yeah. this here. So I, I want to point out that <clears throat> this um, saturated field buffer, like this practice um, is is also heavily promoted by the USDA and, and its um, extension, which is the natural Resources Conservation Services, an organization which I'm quite familiar with because I serve on a conservation district in my home state. And we work a lot with the NRCS and by and large, they do wonderful work. Um, but in, the, in this case, um, the USDA and the NRCS are, are promoting the heavy use of this, which also, any farmer that buys into this system that, that allows the system to be installed is gaining financial remuneration. Isn't that true? Don't you get like, uh, you know, conservation money yep. for doing this? So the farmers are getting money from the government, that is from us, the taxpayers, to install something that isn't actually going to work particularly well. And then yeah. continuing to do exactly the same thing that they've been doing that causes the need for conservation work to take place on their farms. Yeah. So that's right. Um, so here in <laughs> Iowa with the batch and build, with the batch and build program, we're paying them, we're paying them a thousand dollar 
what we call an inconvenience fee. So just mm -hmm. to open the gate, to let people in, they're getting a thousand dollars. Wow. Um, then the entire cost of the practice is paid for um, with public money. And so the farmer's not paying a dime. And then, yeah, we're not asking the farmer to change anything about their operation, which, you know, I've really objected to this for a long time, even before batch and build in that, you know, how do we give farmers license to do whatever they want with inputs on their field and then ask the taxpayer to pay to mitigate the pollution at the field's edge? I just right. think it's really perverse policy. NRCS, yes, is promoting these things. I, I think NRCS, their employees, I think, have in generally a bit of uneasiness about this, but nonetheless, you know, this is the framework um, that we've given them to work under. And so they're going to do that. Right, right. You know, it's just, uh, it's just fascinating to me that we have mythologized farmers much the way we've mythologized cowboys, right? I mean, yep. there's sort of this, uh, you know, no me tocare. I mean, don't touch me. They're untouchable. You can't say anything bad. <laughs> You know, it's That's like we absolutely can't, true. we can't, you know, we can't impose any regulation. Agriculture is the only unregulated industry in this country. Right. Am I wrong in that? Well, I, mean, I think so. And so, you know, especially when you think of what we call extractive industries uh, like mining and forestry and uh, right and commercial fishing, all these things are really heavily regulated to right. protect the resource where farming you know, which is, well, let's face it, it's extractive too. You know, we don't put any guardrails uh, really whatsoever on on farming in terms of the environmental outcomes. As far as the the mythology of the farmer, I mean, that's totally true. Um, you know, we still see the ag advocacy groups promote the American farmer as sort of this rugged agrarian that's scratching out a living against all odds and, you know, the weather's against them, the markets are against them. Right. And it's just a miracle that, you know, the farmer's able to produce uh, the calories that we need. Uh, when the truth is, um, you know, a lot of these farmers are pretty wealthy guys, um, at least sure. in Iowa. And, you know, we see in Iowa, the average farmer makes on the order of $150,000 a year, which you know, isn't huge money, but it's pretty good. And especially right. when you consider a lot of them really don't work all that many hours in the course of a year. <laughs> I hadn't really considered that, but I suppose it's true. I mean, this this is a separate, I should say, I, I mean, let's be clear that this is a subset of the farming population because these are the very large landowners or the corporate entities um, <clears throat> that are the well, guys think, who are making bank, right? I mean, the smaller yeah. guys are not, you know, they're just not on this level that they would need well, tile drainage, for example. Well, no, the small guys have tiles too. But, um, you know, here we have in Iowa 80,000 farmers, but we probably have about 20,000 that are farming half the state. And so when you look right. at who controls the majority of land, you know, it's the big farmers. It's not the small farmers. Right. So, do you know, 
what do we do with these small farmers is an important question. And, you know, do we want to create policy that allows allows them to thrive or, you know, should we just let the market uh, do what it does and, you know, let these guys get swallowed up with consolidation? These are important questions. And it's always been my um, assertion that if we regulated the pollution from these systems, it would level the playing field and give the smaller farmers more opportunity to be prosperous. But we really see small farmers are just as hostile towards environmental regulation as the large farmers. Interesting. You know, because, of course, farm advocacy groups, you know, there's always a good farmer. There's Francis Tickey, for example, with Radiance Dairy. I think he's in Wisconsin. You know, he's doing his best. He's doing a wonderful job. He's making a living. Um, but he's an organic farmer. <laughs> so, yeah, he's in know, Iowa. You know. Yeah. Oh, he is in yeah. Iowa. I couldn't remember whether he was in yeah. Iowa or Wisconsin. In fact, he's anyway. in Jefferson County, which we talked about earlier. Yes, right, right. Um I was looking at the, you know, doing the research for this. Um, I was actually looking for an article that you put a link to, and then I couldn't find the the article on the Iowa Farm Bureau website. And, <clears throat> you know, to your point about if we could only regulate some of the, you know, the, things would change if we could just make everybody adhere to the same uh, rules. But uh, they were, you know, the Iowa Farm Bureau, I'm coming to realize that the Farm Bureau is really a very pernicious um, political tool. Um, and they were commending the Iowa congressional delegation for their quote unquote unwavering support for biofuels, also known as corn, and um, their unwavering support for Iowa agriculture, also known as corn and pigs. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the Farm Bureau? Because it's it's sort of, you know, they they sound, I, I, you know, you're as a layman, you know, my my instinct is to think, oh, these guys are supporting farmers and they want to make everybody happy, blah, blah, blah. But actually, they're a really powerful lobbying group. And I, I thought maybe perhaps you could talk a little bit about the impact that they have um, on things like maybe establishing well, a regulation around water and stuff like that. Yeah. So the Farm Bureau, um, there's an American Farm Bureau Federation and then there's the state chapters right. and then there's county chapters. <clears throat> beneath that. And so the American Farm Bureau is very powerful at the federal level. The state farm bureaus quite often are the most powerful farm groups in the states. But in Iowa, the Iowa Farm Bureau is really sort of the um, most powerful political group we have, period. Wow. And so I think we um, forget what the Farm Bureau really is here in Iowa long and short, it's basically an insurance company. And so they sell insurance products, not just to farmers, but the general pu- public. And far more of their members are non-farmers than are farmers. But really, uh, you know, a lot of their financial products that they uh, use in their, um, in their business model are, you know, big ag uh, companies, uh, John Deere, for example, um, mm-hmm. And um, and so it's really um, in their best interest to see big agribusiness succeed. And so I think that is, you know, where there's this dichotomy, I think, that, you know, Farm Bureau, from my perspective, really does not have the, f- the best interest in the farmer in mind. What they have is the best interest of agribusiness in mind. Mm-hmm. 
And so agribusiness is, is big here. It's, it's very big. Um, you know, there's a lot of jobs connected to um, sure. companies like um, John Deere and um, so forth. And Dow DuPont, Pioneer, D- DuPont, I mean, all of those that's guys. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> all fertilizer the fertilizer companies. Ag Chem, right? Yeah. Seeds, et cetera. Yeah. Sure. Huge. You know, Coke Industries, we've all heard of Coke Industries, right? They're yeah. one of the biggest yeah, uh, producers right? of nitrogen of fertilizer. Um, and so these are very politically powerful entities. Farm Bureau is in and of itself, but also these other organizations there that they're connected to. Right. You know, it's just uh, it's just strumifying to me that these groups um, are so powerful that they can uh, impu- pollute it with impunity and suffer no regulation or consequences to that pollution, um, even though the population is, as you are clearly finding out, uh, are more and more aware of the impacts of this type of system of agriculture on on the basic human right to clean water. You know, I can- so, I mean, here's here's the thing: uh, the corn, soy, uh, CAFO production system could not exist in the current framework without the license to pollute. It That's just right. could not exist, and so right. once you um, like corn, let's look at corn, for example. And once you start regulating the pollution from the corn, from a cornfield, well, the farmer uh, says, well, you know, maybe I'm not going to grow a thousand acres of corn. Maybe I'm just going to grow 500. Well, right. all of a sudden, you know, that changes the paradigm here. Corn is a is an expensive crop to grow. The seeds yeah. are expensive. The chemicals are expensive. The insurance is expensive. The land is expensive. The equipment is expensive. And so when you grow corn, um, you're juicing the system with money. And let's mm-hmm. say you decide, well, I don't want to grow as much corn. I want to grow oats. Well, you know, oats, um, sure, it doesn't produce as much revenue, but the input costs are much lower. And so then the people in agribusiness that depend on what the farmers are doing all of a sudden think, well, gee, why would we want oats? We want them to grow corn. And so I think this is the basic framework that keeps the corn, soy, and CAFO system entrenched. Yeah, right. And then, and here we are doubling down on ethanol production um, with the, with the, you know, (laughs) with the blessings of the Biden administration and Tom Vilsack. Um, you know, it's just, it's breathtaking to me. And there's a, there's a whole other story to talk about with that. In fact, I did talk about it with Sylvia Secchi. <laughs> yeah. Right. But the, you know, the scam of ethanol and the whole, the, you know, that, that pressure to grow more corn is, is a very real aspect. It's just I, how to unwind these economic, um, you know, I don't know what to call them. They're not a knot, but it's an economic sort of paradigm, um, or equation, I guess, uh, that, you know, has been successful to these small numbers of people, but wildly successful. Um, I, you know, I, I just don't see how that's going to happen. But I, I wanted to, we got to end, you know, wrap it up pretty soon here. But but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, um, on, on the Farm Bureau, I noticed a lot of awards and financial incentives that were geared towards 
quote unquote young farmers on that Farm Bureau website. I mean, literally every month they have some like, you know, celebrating this guy or this young farmer, this young woman, whatever, um, you know, either with a prize or or money or just, you know, public encomiums. Um, I, I, they're essentially propagandizing the next generation. Like these kids are not being... Uh, geared towards saving their own environment, they're being geared towards perpetuating the system. And I, I wondered what you thought about, you know, are are there are you hearing voices to counter that in, say, the University of Iowa, um, you know, or other ag extension programs or schools there? Like, is anybody countering the message? Well, I think one of the things that's behind that whole thing is that, you know, the average farmer in Iowa now is 60 years old. And yeah tends to be wealthy and he's white and that, that not that isn't exactly a sympathetic figure in our culture anymore right <laughs> true uh and so a lot of you know young young people want to you know eat the patriarchy as they say and so i think there's an effort to sort of project a different image of the iowa farmer and so they um, grab onto the young ones that we have and and try to promote them Mm -hmm. I think um, I think there's a lot of young people. I know there's a lot of young people that would like to farm now that can't because the price of land is so expensive. And the reason yeah. it's expensive is because of ethanol. Yeah. And so I, I think there is hope for younger people that want to farm that they will want to do uh, something different than the corn, soy and CAFO system. Now, are they being indoctrinated at the ag schools or, you know, I, I can't really um, speak to that very authoritatively. I think there's certainly the impression out there that that is happening, mm -hmm. <clears throat> that people are, um, you know, educated to think that, you know, the only thing we can do here is corn, soy and, um, you know, confinement agriculture. But I think there is um, an idea that younger farmers might want to do some things a little differently. Mm -hmm. I hope so. I mean, I remember talking to somebody from, I think it was the Ameri American Farm Federation. Does that sound right? This is like going back, way back in the time machine for me. Um, but he was saying that one of the real sticking points to changing this model is that the infrastructure is geared towards this model, corn, soy, hogs, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, your, I, gran your, your grain elevators, your sh distribution, the equipment, I mean, everything is geared towards raising those crops and not diversifying the crop structure, which of course, yeah. you know, 15 years ago, everybody was talking about, well, just diversify the agricultural economy and everything will be fine. But, you know, not so easily done. In fact, that's right. So the the economic and built infrastructure is aligned with the current production system. Yeah. And so let's say you want to grow, you know, whatever it might be, oats or cabbages or apples or whatever. Well, you've got to have a place um, you can take that crop to to sell it. And so yeah. the infrastructure needs to be in place to support that production system. But, you know, we ought to be able to do that. We created this uh, behemoth that mm -hmm. is the ethanol industry with policy. And so mm -hmm. if we want to go in a different direction here, we ought to be able to create policy that would allow that to happen. And, you know, that's, 
I just think it's it's entirely possible for us to do different things here. But yes, we do need new policy. Right. Well, on that note, I guess we should say goodbye, Chris. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you'll come back okay. again. I'll keep following the Substack. Um, people, um, tell people how they can find that and also about your book. Again, it's riverraccoon.substack.com. My name's Chris Jones. The title of the sub- Substack is the same as the title of my book. It's called The Swine Republic. Uh, the book's available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and other places and Many of the bookstores in Iowa have it, so. Right, but, you know, you can buy it on good old Amazon. That's one thing it's good for. Anyway, thanks a million for this. Happy holidays to you. I appreciate your time, Chris. All the best to you. So long now. Okay, Katie, thanks for having me on. You bet. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.